Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you as always and worship together this morning. Uh, I was just told on my way out here that the date that was mentioned for Saturday's serve, I think they mentioned October 8th or something like that. It is really the 6th. So whatever that Saturday is around that, that's the actual date. But I just wanted to make that clear and make sure that you know why I'm up here to help clarify announcements. So, um, so hopefully that's all, that's all good and um, whatever Saturday is around that is great. So, uh, all right, let's jump right in this morning. At, at Brookside, we believe that, that one of the most fundamental questions anyone can ask, may, maybe the most fundamental question anyone can ask, is who is Jesus? Um, the value of this question comes out in all sorts of ways. It's why we keep talking about Jesus again and again, both from up front, but also in private settings and one-on-one conversations and in small groups. The, the value of this question, who is Jesus, is why what we're about as a church, the thing is helping people find and follow Jesus. Because if Jesus is who he said he is, then that changes everything for us, right? Because as we learn about who Jesus is, eventually we start to see what that means for who we are. It means something for us. It means we're sinners in need of a Savior when we realize that Jesus is a good and a complete Savior. It means, just like Rob prayed, it means we're sheep in need of a shepherd. And as we learn who Jesus is, we, we see that he is the good shepherd The more you learn about Jesus, the more you realize that you're loved by God so much that he would send Jesus to die for you. The more you learn about Jesus, the more you learn about the purpose your life can have, the more more you learn about the hope that, that Jesus offers for life after death. And so all of that good news, everything that Jesus shows us for who he is, all of that is why we're calling this series that we're in through the Gospel of Luke, why we're calling it the best news ever. Because the more we learn about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, why he came, all of that, it really is good news. And and all of it turns on the question, who is Jesus? Or or C.S. Lewis comes at this question from another angle and shows us why it's important. C.S. Lewis, he was an atheist turned Christian who died over 50 years ago. But, but people are still reading and talking about his books and things that he said. He's tremendously influential. As people talk to me about, hey, Tim, what are some good books maybe you'd recommend I read to, just to help me learn more about Christianity? Some of C.S. Lewis's books are on that short list of things that I recommend others still read. And one of his books is called God in the Dock. And check out what's written in the preface of that book. Yeah, I'm the nerd that reads the preface of books, by the way, so... So so here's what it says in the preface of God on the Dock. It says, It is impossible to decide whether Christianity is true or false if you don't know what it's about. And there are many today who do not know what the real issue is. Well, Well, Brookside, what I want to keep in front of us this morning is that the thing Christianity is about is Jesus. That the real issue is who Jesus is, why he's come, and what he offers. And so again, we're back to the importance of the question, who is Jesus? Well, the passage we're looking at in Luke 4 brings this question center stage for us. Because we get to hear from Jesus himself. 
how he introduces himself. So you'll be able to fill in some blanks for, for who is Jesus in some key ways based off things Jesus actually said about himself. But we don't want to just stop there with just some information about who Jesus is. Because on top of seeing who Jesus is, we'll also see that Jesus' identity, it, it does something in us. It invites a response. Who Jesus is should do something in you. This last summer, my family and I were, uh, were taking a few days. We were hanging out in the Black Hills up in South Dakota. And one of the things we did while we were up there was we were panning for gold. And so my four boys are all out. They've got kind of their, their pans with some water and dirt in it that they got from the stream. And they're out there kind of swirling the pans, stuff like that, trying to see if they've got any gold here in this water from the stream. And sure enough, they all got a few specks of gold from their time swirling and filtering and everything that they did as part of this process of panning for gold. And so they all left with these, with these little vials they gave us that had, I don't know, five or seven or ten specks of gold in each vial. And so, so just a few weeks after our trip, one of our twins, Sawyer, he got out a microscope he has that he loves to use, got his microscope out, and he was looking at some of these specks of gold underneath his microscope. So he invites me in to go, hey, check out this, check out this gold, check out these specks of gold. And so, so we're there looking at the gold underneath a microscope and saying things like, whoa, that's cool, and hmm, interesting, and all the things you say when you're looking at things under a microscope. But you know what? After that, it didn't really change anything about my day. I, I was looking at gold, and it didn't change me. But, but I bet that if I was living in, in the peak time of the Black Hills Gold Rush, 1876, and we were out digging in our backyard, and we discovered gold, I bet my response wouldn't be, hmm, that's interesting, and then go about the rest of my day like nothing had happened. No, finding gold would motivate me to act in some very specific ways. Everything else would take back seat around that, right? Everything else about my life would be reoriented around this priority. Hey, we struck gold. Let's do something about it. Well, in Luke chapter 4, we see gold about who Jesus is from his own lips. But we don't want to respond to that with just like, hmm, that's interesting. No, no, we want this gold we discover about who Jesus is, we want that to do something in us so it reorients our lives underneath the priority of what we've discovered. And we'll see very specifically what that right response looks like today as we discover who Jesus is. Eventually we'll end up, kind of by the end of this morning, by saying, okay, what does that look like for, for, for me to place my faith in Jesus how do I respond with humility, and how do I respond with obedience? So, so that's where we're going, but Luke 4 is how we're going to get there. And so let's look at Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 21, is the passage we're going to start with. And, and we're going to see who Jesus is very closely, very clearly in this passage. So Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. It says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So, so he's just coming back from what we preached on last week, where Jeff talked about Jesus' temptations by Satan in the wilderness and how Jesus overcame Satan's temptations there. Jesus is coming back from that. He's returning to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. 
and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went up to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on this Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And so it's a really important side note there, right? He went into the synagogue, as was his custom. I, I want you to see that Jesus, quote, unquote, went to church. I mean, if anyone had the excuse to sleep in a little bit, to roll over in bed, to get some other things done during that time of the day, it was Jesus, right? He could have said, I'll, I'll catch up with my father later. But, but Jesus, one of his regular rhythms of life, as was his custom, he was in gathered worship with God's people. Don't miss that as we read through Luke chapter 4. So continuing on, he's there in the synagogue, as was his custom. And then he's, he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And so the, the place Jesus reads from in Isaiah here is the first few verses of Isaiah chapter 61. Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus said, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Now, now the way they did services back then is that Jesus would have been handed this scroll for, for the public reading of Scripture, which is just part of how they did things. Isaiah is a big book. And so there would have been just some, some unrolling of the scroll as part of this. So, so there was awkward silence as Jesus read through Isaiah. And then, and then as he finished up while he rolled the scroll back up, right? There's this period of silence there. And then while he hands it back to the, to the synagogue attendant, a little bit more silence. And then after they stood to read from Scripture, they, they would preach their sermons. They would teach sitting down. And so, so Jesus is just getting ready to sit down. So in all of this silence, while, while things are moving around, while things are going on, in all of this, people's eyes were fastened on Jesus. You could hear a pin drop. And what did Jesus say? He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Everything about what Jesus read and what he said, everything about that is good news. You see, see what Jesus says here, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, that shows us that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Isaiah was written about 700 years before Jesus steps on the scene in the first century here. And so for 700 years at least, and really for longer than that, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, People have been waiting, longing, aching for the Messiah. And Jesus says, I'm him. So, so Jesus is the promised Messiah. And then if you've ever wondered why Jesus came, we, we hear from Jesus' own lips what his mission is, right? He came to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. This is why Jesus came. He came to take what's wrong with the world, right? Poverty, captivity, blindness, oppression. He came to take what's wrong with the world 
and to make it right. Some of you can relate to all of that on a very literal level, where maybe you, you came to know Jesus in the midst of economic poverty. Or maybe you've spent time in a cell yourself, and the reason you're out is because of, of the transforming work Jesus has done in your life, just shaping you, making you into a new person. Maybe Jesus has restored you physically in some very miraculous ways. But, but for others of us, the literal side of this is just outside of our experience. But we know there's a spiritual dimension to everything Jesus brings up here as well. Because maybe you've always been pretty comfortable financially. But you know that you are bankrupt spiritually. You know that the, the, the stuff in your life, your sin, has created this hole of debt that you can never climb out of. Or maybe you've never really been in trouble with the law, but you know the chains and the captivity that secret sin just puts on your wrists. Maybe you've always had perfect vision, 2020, but spiritually you're groping in the dark. You know, spiritually, you're blind. You feel oppressed by the thoughts you can't escape, by these feelings, by these emotions that are just pressing down on you. You see, you see it's possible for us to look great on the outside. But on the inside, each of these things, poverty, captivity, blindness, oppression, on the inside, each of these things is true of us. On the inside, we are fragile, on the inside, we are needy. On the inside, we are broken. I, I, I get this. I get this deeply in some very personal ways that everything can look good on the outside. But on the inside, things are, are messy and fragile. Hurting, where we need help. Here's this picture of my family from September of last year. So almost exactly a year ago from where we are right now. Great picture, right? That lady there, she's a keeper. You know, I mean, um, anytime you can get four boys who are 13 and younger to all be looking one direction, smiling at the same time, and somebody's like fist isn't coming at somebody else's body, that's a win, right? So chalk this up to success. Happy picture. But underneath the veneer of this picture, it's probably the hardest time my, my family has ever faced. You see, just a few weeks before this picture was taken, Carrie, my wife, this lovely lady here, she started to experience some deep anxiety and some deep depression in very sudden and severe ways. She'd never had any history of anything, but it came on suddenly and, and hit us like a Mack truck. It was severe. That the symptoms she was showing manifested themselves in very unsettling ways, in very visible ways. Every rhythm of our life changed. For the months we were in the middle of this storm we found ourselves in. And the day before this picture was taken, when we're all smiling and everybody looks happy, the day before this picture was taken, Carrie and I were sitting in a hospital, and she was on her back in a machine in a tube getting a scan of her brain. 
But we wanted to keep with the pictures, right? We had them scheduled. Carrie really wanted to still have the pictures taken. We didn't know the results of those CAT scans yet. So, so of course, the, the thing we would never say is that this is worst-case scenario type situation. But since we had the picture schedule, scheduled, we went ahead with the pictures. And for 30 or 45 minutes, we pretended very well, right? You look at this picture and you think, everything is going great. But beneath the surface of that picture, behind that picture, we were fragile. Behind that picture, we were hurting and we needed help. Now, by God's grace and, and the friendship of a few others, we just leaned on very heavily during that time. So through, the, through the wisdom of doctors and, and just the, the good news that, no, the scans came back, that there's nothing serious there, at least, at least physically, going on. So through everything that was part of that, God brought us through that rough two or three months, but we've not been back there since last fall. But the reason I tell all of you this is because you can look really great on the outside, but on the inside, you're fragile and hurting, and you know that you need help. And this is exactly the situation that Jesus speaks to in Luke chapter 4, where, where he speaks to brokenness. He speaks to desperation, he speaks to need, and he speaks to inability. Everything we learn as Jesus speaks here, everything we learn about his identity and his mission, it's good news. It doesn't mean everything gets fixed overnight. It doesn't mean life is suddenly and always easy. But here's what it does mean, what Jesus just said. It means that none of these things we've been talking about, poverty, or captivity, or blindness, or oppression, none of those things, listen to me, Brookside, none of those things are stronger than Jesus. The, the good news of everything we've been looking at shows us that none of these things ultimately will have the final word. Right? Because, because eternally, the hope that we have is Jesus takes what's wrong with the world and he makes it right. That is the best news ever. And so who is Jesus? Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Son of God, anointed with the Spirit to take what's wrong with the world and to make it right. And he does that through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And in the midst of all of the brokenness, he offers hope and wholeness to any who would place their faith in him. Brookside, that is good news. But now the question for us, how do we respond to that? So, so now that we have this body of information about who Jesus is, and we're drawn to that, now that we've seen the gold that we've discovered, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you? Well, before we think about what we should do, let's look at what Jesus' hearers did. Because it's really, it's, it's a lesson in how not to respond. But we're not going to stop with their bad example. Because we're going we're gonna to see before we're done a very different way to respond. Because some of you, maybe you feel fragile and hurt and broken. And today, 
In just a few minutes, we're going to see what a right response to, look, to Jesus looks like and how because, because of him, because he's worthy, we can have faith, we can find humility, and we can find a joy in obedience. And so let's, let's read the, the rest of this passage through the end of the chapter. I'm going to start in Luke chapter 4. We're going to pick it back up in verse 22. And, and I'm going to read a bit. We're going to talk through it. I'm going to read a bit more. We're going to kind of work through it chunk by chunk today because there's a lot going on. But here's what Luke 4.22 says. So, so all spoke well of him, right? After Jesus read this, put down the scroll, said, Today this is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. And so things start out great. This is the response every communicator wants, right? People kind of leaning over in their, in their chairs saying, man, he's knocking it out of the park. Dude, follow him on Twitter. All the sort of stuff people say to speak favorably about people. But, but then there's this borderline suspicious comment that that's part of their reaction as well. Because some people are saying, hey, hey wait a second, though. Isn't this Joseph's son? Before we get too excited, isn't that the carpenter that grew up down the street? That lives not too far from you? So there's this borderline suspicious comment. Verse 23, Jesus said to them, Surely you'll, you'll quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself and you'll tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. And so Jesus knows what they're thinking. Just like any good teacher, he anticipates what they're thinking and he addresses it first. And so, so Jesus, when he speaks here in Luke 4, he'd already had a little bit of time doing public ministry that isn't recorded here in Luke, but it's recorded in the first few chapters of John. You can read about it there, the, these miracles that he was doing in this place called Capernaum. And so the people in Nazareth, they've heard about that stuff that Jesus was doing in Capernaum. And so, of course, they're like, dude, we want to see the stuff you did there. We want to see that here, right? Do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. Jesus knows they want the benefit of his miracles, but they don't really care about being part of his mission. They were thinking about themselves and what was best for themselves. Don't miss this. We'll come back to it in a second. They were thinking inward, not outward. And so Jesus redirects their attention very quickly. Verse 24, he continues and says, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the whole land. In a, yet Elijah wasn't sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And so, so Jesus, he brings up two very famous Old Testament stories here. Every Jew in the synagogue when he's speaking, they would have known these stories, right? This is, this is from the Old Testament. They, they grew up hearing these stories. And so Jesus brings up two very, old, very famous Old Testament stories to make one point through both of them. The first is the story of Elijah going to a widow in Zarephath. You can read about this in 1 Kings 17. The story is there, right? It's a great miracle about how God provides for Elijah and this widow and her son in this time of famine. 
great miracle about God's provision. But the thing Jesus points out here isn't the miracle itself. The point Jesus is making is that this widow is from Zarephath in the region of Sidon, outside of Israel. So ethnically, she's not Jewish. And to the Jews that were listening to Jesus, that would have been a really big deal. Jesus is showing them, hey, don't forget that story of Elijah, where we see God working among the Gentiles for the Gentiles. Hey, hey synagogue, that, that's right now thinking just inward, don't forget that God's vision, God's activity, that famous story of Elijah, that was a worldwide activity. God isn't just focused on one kind of person. God loves the world. That's the point he's driving home here when he mentions, hey, hey, that widow from Zarephath in Sidon, he's helping these, 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 this Jewish synagogue that lived in Nazareth in the first century zoom way out and see how big God's activity around the world is. And then Jesus makes the same point when he brings up the story of Elijah or, or Elisha, excuse me, when he brings up Naaman the Syrian. You can read about that in 2 Kings 5. Naaman is a military leader who has leprosy and gets healed. But again, the focus isn't on the miracle. The focus is on the fact that Naaman is a Syrian. Again, not ethnically Jewish. Another example of God working among the Gentiles and God working for the Gentiles, for the world. And so Jesus takes this temptation that that the people in the synagogue had back then, the temptation that we have now to think inward, and he, he zooms way out, and he says, don't forget that God isn't just focused on one kind of people. God loves and is for the world. So, so how do the people respond when Jesus gently but, but directly takes their attention and says, hey, let's not think about ourselves Let's think for the world here. This mission of freedom for the captives, of good news for the poor, this mission isn't just for you. This mission is for the world. How do the people respond when Jesus zooms them way out to that level? I've been reading Luke 4, verses 28 to 30 all week. And every time I read it, it surprises me. Look at how the story ends here. After Jesus redirects their attention away from themselves to God's vision for the world, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, they drive him out of the town, and they take him to the brow of the hill on which the town is built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Nobody knows how verse 30 works, by the way. That, that's the thing everybody's like, how'd that work? I don't know. Commentaries talk a lot about it, but bottom line, nobody knows. But what I want to focus our attention on now is the complete 180 degree spin that happens between verse 22 and verse 28. Verse 22, right? We read there that people were speaking well of Jesus. They were amazed at his gracious words. And then six verses later, within the time span of a commercial break. They are furious that they drive him out of town and they're fully intending to kill him. They're looking the best news ever in the face 
and they reject it. What happened between verse 22 and verse 28? Why the turn? I think a big part of their rejection is because of of the danger of familiarity. You see, when the people listening to Jesus in the synagogue, when they saw him, they saw Joseph's son. That they saw the kid that had grown up playing in their streets. They saw the kid that, that maybe they'd done some learning with, and, and sure, he was a good teacher, but he isn't he that carpenter that lives down the street? And they can't get past the fact that, that they were just so familiar with Jesus. They, they thought they knew who Jesus was so much from his background, from being familiar with him, that they missed who he fully and truly is. And I think this same danger of familiarity, we need to be on watch for today. Because we can think we know Jesus. But we don't. Not, not fully. Not truly. Not the way he presents himself here in the New Testament. Everything we learned about how the Old Testament looks ahead to him. We can miss that. Listen to what one pastor says about this. He says, familiarity is why a lot of people don't recognize Jesus as their Messiah. They've had just enough Bible to make them think they know, so they're not looking any deeper. They're familiar with Sunday school Bible stories. They've come to church at Easter and Christmas. They've, they've heard a little bit on TV or in the barbershop, so they've become familiar, and they don't see. Don't be too familiar with Jesus. Look hard. Listen long. Be certain that you recognize him for who he is. Because he's someone who gets deeper, and then I would even add better. He gets deeper and better the deeper you look. So there's the danger of familiarity. And I think between verses 22 and 28, there's also the danger of comfort. You see, Jesus' listeners, they wanted a Messiah who would fit very comfortably within their already held views, rather than a Messiah who would who would challenge them to to change, who would challenge their views. There's this guy by the name of Augustine. He lived in the fourth century, and he said something like this. He said, people love the truth when it suits them, and they hate the truth when it challenges them. And so what can we learn from all this? If, if those dangers, the danger of familiarity and the danger of comfort, if those are the things we, we want to be on watch for, if those are the things we want to avoid, what do we pursue? What do we embrace? As we see our own need and brokenness, how do we respond rightly? Right? So we're not so scared by rejecting Jesus that we miss out the chance to have hope in him, the hope that he offers how do we get to a spot where we don't turn him down, but where we run to him, where we receive him rightly? Here's what it looks like. Receiving Jesus rightly, it asks for faith, where faith simply means we take Jesus at his word. This isn't blind faith. This isn't faith that goes against reason, nothing like that. But it means that we dig in, we learn more about who Jesus is and all he's done. And then as we learn how good and great Jesus is, what he's done for us on the cross, it means we, we trust completely in that for, for being right with God. Receiving Jesus rightly, 
It asks for humility, where we don't follow Jesus on our terms. We follow Jesus on his terms. He sets the pace. This requires tremendous humility to say, okay, I'm not going to be in charge. And to say, okay, Jesus is going to be the, the good Lord who directs my life. It, it changes the posture of our heart from one where we're kind of stepped in the background, kind of arms folded, and kind of our whole posture is one of, hmm, I don't really need what he's got. Uh, I'm good on my own. It, it changes our heart from this posture of resistance to humility where we open up our hands and we say, Jesus, I need you. I need what you offer. I, I need forgiveness for sins, and I need the hope of eternal life. And you are the only one who can fully and truly meet that need. It requires humility. Or responding to Jesus rightly, it also involves obedience. A great way to know if Jesus is changing you is to see if anything in your life, maybe something you do, maybe just in the way you think, just to see if anything in your life is actually different because you know Jesus. What difference does he make? Sometimes we need others to help us see this because we're always more prone to see where God isn't working in our lives, where we want him to work, but he doesn't seem to be than where he is. So this is where we always encourage you, when you see God at work in other people's lives, speak that into them, point that out to them, encourage them with it, because they may not see it themselves. Sometimes this change, usually this change, happens more slowly than we want, where we want change to happen like that. But eventually we realize change is much more of a process than an event. But however it happens, on whatever sort of timeline it happens, this change involves obedience, where we follow Jesus as our Lord and we let him direct our steps. We let him change our lives personally. And then we get engaged in the mission of what he's doing in and for the world. And so now the question is yours. What will you do with Jesus? We've seen who he is. We've seen clearly how the New Testament presents himself. We've, we've heard from Jesus himself who he is. Now, how will we respond? How will we respond to the truth that he is the promised Messiah, God's son, sent to address the sin and the brokenness in the world and in our lives and to offer hope and wholeness in the midst of it? Maybe some of you finally realize you need to respond with faith. And today is the day you make a very conscious decision to own up to your sin, to trust in Jesus' work on the cross for your sin, and to just say, Jesus, I invite you into my life. I'll follow you. You can do that today. Some of you need to talk that out some more. It's a big decision. So if you do need to talk that out some more, talk to the friend who invited you here today. Talk to any of us on staff here at Brookside. We'd love to have that conversation with you. But today, as you take that step, you can experience the assurance that comes from life in Jesus and from knowing that there is zero condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Or maybe some of you, you just need to, to re-engage humbly with humility, Jesus. Where you open up your hands and you say, Jesus, I'm going to stop setting the terms. And I'm going to let you guide my life. I, I'm going to just very consciously say, I'm not in charge of my life. You are Jesus. And, and then some of us just need to respond with renewed commitments to obedience. Where you recommit to the work of Jesus' transformation in you but where you also continue to get involved in Jesus' mission for the world, starting with your family, your neighborhood, your apartment complex, your work, and then out from there. So how will you respond to the good news of who Jesus is? Let's pray. I want to focus on two things very specifically as we, as we pray together this morning. There are some of you here, this is the first time you've heard anything like this about, about who Jesus is and the response that he asks for, the, the hope that he offers as we come to him rightly. Some of you today, the, the stuff just finally makes sense of what we've been looking at from the New Testament. And you say, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior. If that's you, I just invite you right now to, to very consciously just say, Jesus, I invite you into my life. Where you say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, and I trust what you've done on the cross for my sin. Where you say, very consciously, just silently to yourself, Jesus, yes, I will follow you as my Savior and my Lord. Others of us, need to remember the value of humility. That we follow Jesus on his terms, not our own. And you just need to maybe even very physically put yourself in a posture right now of having your hands open in front of you and saying, Jesus, I will follow you as my good Lord and I'll go where you lead me. I'll follow you on your terms because I trust in you. And then others of us just need to renew our commitment to obedience where we trust in Jesus' best interests for us. And we need to do some work in taking practical steps of obedience that line up with how he's created us. So now I just want to give you guys just a few more seconds just to say, Jesus, I respond to you in faith. Or maybe, Jesus, I respond to you in humility. Or Jesus, I respond to you in obedience. But to take just a few seconds now and to do one of those three things this morning. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We, we thank you for how good it is that you are the promised Messiah, the Son of God, come to, to take away the sin of the world, to, to, to fix what's broken and to make it right. Jesus, we know that all hinges on what you've done for us on the cross and on your resurrection. And so we, we just say again this morning, thank you. You are worthy. Amen.